In case you missed it, this morning's biblical lessons are repetitive. And whenever this happens in our prescribed meanings, it means that we had better pay attention because the message is supposed to be readily accessible and clear. Now, unless your recall of ancient history and geography is much better than mine, which is not hard to do, it is not immediately obvious what the takeaway is meant to be. So I went ahead and looked up Zebulun and Naphtali in case anyone needed a reminder like I did. The passage from Isaiah comes from an oracle for a king's coronation. It's written in the spirit of celebration of the new monarch's rule, who they project will bring about liberation from oppression. More specifically, it references the successful defeat of the Assyrian siege that was targeted at Jerusalem. In plain terms, it tells the story of God's deliverance of God's people. In directly repeating the words from Isaiah, Matthew makes clear that the anticipated consequences of Jesus's reign is liberation. The freedom long ago experienced by their ancestors would once again be made real because of Jesus. Though Jesus lived in a different time than the prophet Isaiah, he also was born into a reign of terror. If you'll recall, after visiting Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the wise men returned to their country using a route that specifically avoided King Herod for fear he would kill them. When King Herod could not locate the baby about whom so many were talking, he had infants under the age of two slaughtered. Can you imagine Anything more horrific than a grown man and powerful ruler so worried about an unknown threat that he systematically kills babies? If it wasn't clear before, it became abundantly clear that the people were in need of liberation from the cruel and total oppression of Roman rule. This is the context in which we are given the call story of the first disciples. Oftentimes, we hear this call story and the sermon that accompanies it marvels at the fact that these men needed so little convincing. Some will say we should be in awe of their faithfulness. All they had to do was hear Jesus's voice and they knew. (laughs) But I don't think that's the whole story. The reality of life under King Herod was awful. Add to it the fact that they were fishermen, subject to weather, the tides, and the brutal reality that if they caught less, they just didn't get paid. Biblical scholar Ched Myers provides more detail on the specific predicament of the fishermen. Hang in with me, it's not short. We know that at this time, the fishing industry was being steadily restructured for export so that the majority of fish were salt preserved or made into a fish sauce and shipped to distant markets throughout the empire. All fishing had become state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite, either Greeks or Romans who had settled in Palestine following military conquest, or Jews connected with the Herodian family. They profited from the fishing industry in two ways. First, they controlled the sale of fishing leases, without which locals could not fish. 
these rights, and often capitalization as well, were normally awarded not to individuals, but to local kinship-based cooperatives, such as the brothers Simon and Andrew or the Zebedee family. Second, they taxed the fish product and its processing and levied tolls on product transport. Local administrators handled royal leases, contracts, and taxes. Hang in with me there. This transformation of the local economy, made possible by the infrastructural improvements carried out by the Herodians, functioned to marginalize and impoverish formerly self-sufficient native fishing families. Leases, taxes, and tolls were exorbitant, while the fish upon which local people depended as a dietary staple was extracted for export. Thus, fishermen were falling to the bottom of an increasingly elaborate economic economic hierarchy. Elites looked down on them, even as they depended upon their labor. The most shameful occupations are those which cater to our sensual pleasures, wrote Rome wrote Roman the poet, wrote the Roman poet Cicero pejoratively. Fish sellers, butchers, cooks, poultry raisers, and fishermen. The fisher, attests an ancient Egyptian pyrus, is more miserable than any other profession. Do you get what I'm saying? (laughs) Frankly, it's not surprising that the fishermen were eager to move towards that which was life-giving and away from their oppressive realities. I want to wonder with you if the thing that made these fishermen ready to drop everything and follow was a pre-existing longing for a different kind of life. They were longing for a light in the darkness long before they actually encountered that light. They were attuned to that which might be the beginning of something new. So Jesus, Jesus made a strategic decision to begin with those who had nothing to lose and everything to gain. In a similar spirit, Dr. Martin Luther King chose to stand alongside sanitation workers in their struggle for justice. Gandhi chose to mobilize the untouchable class, the untouchable class, as he worked to build a more just society. Now, it's not manipulative, but strategic to come alongside those who stand in a liminal space, daily balancing life and death, survival and termination. Those who walk this line have a clarity of perception that is skewed by the luxury of comfort. Jesus made a choice to begin his ministry with those whom he knew would be ready for something new. Now, it is not difficult to imagine Ukrainians living in a war zone are ready for deliverance from conflict and a return to peace. It is not difficult to imagine that individuals who have been driven to the food bank in the last few months because of the weight of inflation are longing for a return to a more normal state of being. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, the Arlington Food Assistance Center served six 1,900 of our neighbors, which is a higher number than at any point in the pandemic two weeks ago here in Arlington. It is not difficult to imagine why people of color in the United States long for a new way of being, one that does not include the fear of their children being killed if they get pulled over for a traffic stop. 
There are plenty of examples, current and historic, of those who long for a new hope and the ways in which their readiness has made a notable difference in bringing about a more just world. They have had no choice but to confront the urgency of their longings, which have become a matter of life and death. But this morning, I want to wonder with you what it means to experience the calling Jesus delivers if you don't find yourself in one of those liminal places where deliverance is a matter of life and death. I want to wonder with you what it looks like to spiritually attend to and cultivate the, the nature of longings. I recently began working with a spiritual director who specializes in working with directees who are middle-aged. I didn't know this before I started working with him, but when he shared this as we were getting to know one another, my thought was, that's great for them. What is he going to do with me? (laughs) Turns out I was his audience. Brother Randy shared that middle age is the time when we come to terms with the fact that things we once did to survive become an obstacle to our flourishing. In the biblical tradition, there is a pattern of realization followed by a long, I think many, many decades long period of silence before the individuals emerge. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, who took 40 years to be ready to see the burning bush, or Paul, who endured 15 years of silence. We are most familiar with the parts of their story that made them pillars of the faith, the parts that involve responsiveness and action. But I think Brother Randy's point is that for each of them and for us, there is a much longer period of time that involves waiting and listening, training our spirit to have the courage to attend to our deepest longings. If the biblical examples have anything to teach us, it is that this process is deeply grounded in prayer and an appreciation for God's timeline rather than our own. This past Wednesday, I had the pleasure of listening and taking part in a discussion with eight of our parishioners who have been a part of a sacred ground dialogue circle on race. Their insights were compassionate, curious, and thoughtful. They wrestled deeply with the question that if law and politics don't change cultures, What could? One of the possibilities they entertained was that it's communities and relationships that change something as deeply embedded as the culture of racism. This is a much more daunting proposition than a call for laws that eliminate structural racism or prison reform. Building trust. And committing to relationships is a more taxing call than simply supporting the right piece of legislation. But I had a front row seat as they began to wrestle with what this calling looks like in their life and in this community. One of your fellow parishioners offered the wisdom, I think we're doing it right now. Just this week, eight of the faithful gathered to wait listen, and share their longings with one another. Last Monday at an MLK celebration at Mount Olive Baptist Church, the Reverend Otis Moss Jr., who walked 
alongside and worked alongside Dr. King and the civil rights movement, preached to a sanctuary full of Arlingtonians and said these words, in your time and in your space, by God's grace, you can make a difference. In your time and in your space, by God's grace, you can make a difference. This morning, as you remember the call of Jesus' first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, remember not just that they were deeply faithful, but that they were longing for something more in life. Look around you so that you might learn from those whose longings are a matter of life and death. And remember that you, no matter your stage in life, are capable of attending to your deepest longings, which just might be God breaking onto the scene to bring about a new hope. Amen.